Find your next truck at Woodhouse Buick GMC. No matter where you're heading or what tasks need tackling, there's a premium and capable GMC truck that's perfect for you. Make a statement on the job site, out in the town, or wherever life leads you in the powerful and distinctive Sierra 1500. Or elevate your driving experience in the adventurous and innovative canyon. Explore our inventory online at WoodhouseBuickGMC.com or visit our indoor showroom today. Woodhouse Buick GMC. We are professional grade. This is America with Rich Valdez, powered by PolitiWeek.com. And Rich Valdez is with us, former Christie administration official. You worked for Chris Christie, you've been in politics, done a lot of public service stuff. Rich Valdez, columnist now with the Washington Times. This is America. Richie V, you're on the air with the nation. The nation. This is America with your host, Rich Valdez. What's up, America? I am Rich Valdez. Valdez with an S 17 blocks away from Madison Square Garden right here in New York City. And we've got Cardi B, Cuomo, cancel culture, canceling Cuomo of all people. Plus, there's some college action that I don't want you to miss out on. The Young Americans for Liberty, well, they, uh, they're coming under attack here in New York. Plus, racist babies towards the end. But first, man, what a beautiful day. It really is a gorgeous day. It feels like spring out there. I don't know if you could feel that through the radio, if you could feel the sun rays that are coming through this big 10 by 10 window I'm looking at, 3rd Avenue. I see the hustle and the bustle of the city. Yellow cabs going all over the place. A few city bikers out there, trucks carrying goods. That means people are selling stuff and delivering it to places. That's called the free market, and I love that. And there's so much of that that's missing. You know, I'm still looking at a restaurant, a world, literally a world-famous restaurant. I'm not going to give them a free plug, but this is a restaurant you've seen in movies historically you know for the last 20 30 years you've seen this place and uh, it's an iconic place one of the best steak places here in the city and it's it's still shut down and it's heartbreaking it's heartbreaking to see that's what happened here in new york city and it's happening across america just imagine if this is what's happening in new york city there's so many places that are worse off because we had such a robust economy in new york because we're in new york but lo and behold here we are. And a lot of that has to do with not only Essential Andy Cuomo, but of course, Bill El Bobo de Blasio. Now, Bill El Bobo de Blasio, he's one of these, um, you know, communist sympathizers that, you know, dedicated his life to working with groups that supported the Sandinistas and, and Daniel Ortega, right? Ortega was the um, communist leader of the Sandinistas in Nicaragua. So, I mean, this is literally the man that was elected to be mayor of New York City. Then you have Essential Andy. Essential Andy decides whether your business and your, and in effect, he decides whether your livelihood is essential or not, in his opinion. And it's this type of um, decision-making or a flawed decision-making, the deadly decisions that he's made that have had really um, fatal outcomes that have affected so many people. And I think that's why he's in so much hot water. So I want to talk about that. We're going to talk about some immigration. And we're also going to talk about what's going on with elections, because there's a headline coming out of Wisconsin. And I thought that was pretty interesting. In Wisconsin, there were issues initially with respect to you know, what was going on in Green Bay. And there was, you know, there was issues. And Republican lawmakers yesterday decided to call for hearings and investigations after it was reported that the Wisconsin spotlight showed outside groups were essentially allowed to take over Green Bay's election last fall. The report relied on emails that show the former Democratic operative Michael Spitzer Rubenstein served as a de facto elections administrator and had access to Green Bay's absentee ballots days before the election. 
and that this interference or his interference frustrated both the Green Bay City Clerk and the Brown County Clerk during the election. Now, frustrated seems like, uh, you know, they were just a little bit annoyed. Doesn't sound like he broke the law, although that might be the implication. Green Bay's clerk took a leave of absence just weeks before Election Day and never came back. That sounds a little bit more than frustrated to me. Senator Alberta Darling, who is the second on the Senate's Elections Committee, Tuesday said there still needs to be a formal investigation into what happened. This story raises significant questions about how Green Bay and possibly other communities in our state handled the November election, Darling said. I urge Governor Tony Evers and Attorney General Josh Call to conduct an investigation into these findings so we can find out, you know, what happened here and restore confidence and integrity in our elections. End quote. Now, she's not alone. Senator Roger Roth from Appleton, a Republican, he said the same thing. And that you need this. You need an investigation. Local leaders in Green Bay need to be held responsible. Then you have Mayor Eric Greenwich, who said that his responsibility to safeguard the integrity of our elections uh, was handed over to these partisan organizations. I'm calling on him to resign from office immediately. So it's getting nasty. It's getting political. And this is one of those he said, she said, but it looks like the facts might be on their side in Wisconsin. Now, uh, Republican lawmakers questioned the refusal to purge over 200,000 voters who hadn't cast ballots in years, a decision that was made by the state's election commission to mass mail ballots and the determination not to allow the Green Party on the ballot. There were also questions about ballot harvesting, particularly in Madison, Wisconsin, state's capital. The quote-unquote curing of ballots in Milwaukee and Madison, a process in which members of a voting advocacy group assist a voter to fix an individual ballot error to ensure that it's counted, is also among Republican concerns. Republicans have said for months that those unanswered questions have millions of voters in the state wondering if the November election was fairly and legally managed. I think that's a fair way to put it, you know, because if you say something like uh, election and the F word, and no, I don't mean the F bomb. I mean the F word fraud. (laughs) They start playing disclaimers. Uh, But these are legitimate questions that people all across America have. Now, I look at all of that and I say, what is the deal? How do we move forward from that? And I think I've made the analogy before on this show. Uh, or maybe other shows, that just because somebody may get robbed or mugged when they come to New York City doesn't mean everybody's going to get robbed or mugged. And, you know, but for Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Georgia, Arizona, Nevada, the states, you know, the the half dozen states that the president, his campaign and his lawyers uh, had in question, there's 50 states, 3,000, approximately 3,000 counties in America. They're not all in question. So while it may have been pervasive in these areas, one thing for sure that we know is uh, not pervasive is that it's not that many counties that had these problems, even if there was a widespread issue in those counties. I'm not sure if that makes sense, but I think that's the way we have to look at it. We can't look at this as something where that's insurmountable, where we can't come back from. We can definitely come back from this. And that's exactly what we have to do. Right. Uh, Otherwise, uh, we just pack it up and we go home. Otherwise, there's nothing left. There's absolutely nothing left. That's kind of like saying there is a crisis at the border. People are coming in droves every day. There's they're even coming without parents. You got little kids coming across. You got this one coming across that one coming across. All sorts of people are coming across and uh, it's too many. There's no way we can stop it. So we're just going to forget about it and let it happen. No, you don't do that. You keep pushing. They push back. You push harder. I mean, that's that's how this business works. That's what it means to be an advocate for things that you believe in. This is why we have to be uh, activists in our real lives as well as our professional lives. And if you're able to do that. And this is why so many people, I think, 
need to abandon in many ways the idea that I just want to raise my kids and do what I got to do. And that those days don't exist. At least those days only exist if you don't care. If you don't care about the future of America, if you don't care what's going on in your society, then you get to say, oh, I'm just going to drive my truck or mind my business or teach my class and go, uh, go along to get along. But if you really care about America and you want to see things change, then yes, this means you may have to stop doing things the way you once did them. And you're going to have to become a little bit more aggressive in your approach. And I don't mean aggressive in a physical way or in a violent way, but I do mean taking steps like, no, we're not going on vacation this year, family. I'm going to use that money to fund a campaign for the school board. I'm going to fund a, a losing campaign to challenge the mayor and call him out and, and pay for the advertising so that I can embarrass this guy. And hopefully people will see what this mayor's really doing. And I mean, the mayor of your local town or, you know, go after your local superintendent or beat up your local teachers union or whatever it is you got to do. But the point is, you got to do those things. And and there's many ways to do it. You know, me, for example, I was always involved in activism, things like that. So I had the opportunity to help start a charter school. And that's what I did. And today there's there's three buildings now, the elementary school, the middle school and a high school. It's amazing to me. Nine hundred students. This started, you know, 10 years ago as an idea in uh, my buddy Brett Schundler's kitchen in Jersey City. The idea hatched. Next thing you know, we've got three buildings and we've got kids that started in kindergarten and, you know, they're on their way to graduating from high school. To me, it's a beautiful story, especially since it happened in downtown Jersey City. So these are some of the things that I think we need to pay attention to and, and stay involved in. I uh, left my career in higher education. I worked in higher education for almost a decade doing marketing and things like that as a manager, a department manager, department head. And one of the things that I did was I got away from that to go work in the government. I went to go work in the swamp. Now, I knew the swamp wasn't for me and I wasn't going to be there forever. But I went, I put in some time to try to make the best of whatever situation I was in. And while I was in the swamp, I did my absolute best to make sure that government ran as responsibly and, and, and smoothly as possible. And again, there was a lot of challenges. The deep state's a real thing, the administrative state, the bureaucracy, whatever you want to call it. That's a real thing. But you take on that fight. You take on the culture. This is, I think, part of what we have to do. I got married. I planned on being married for my entire life. Till death do us part. That didn't happen. I'm divorced. But guess what? I still believe in marriage. I still support marriage. I would advocate for marriage for, for most people on any day of the week. Because I do believe that that is ultimately one of the things that helps you, A, create wealth. B, it's, it's the right societal construct, if you will, to bring about a family. It's what you need to, it's easier to raise your children with a mom and a dad in a house or an apartment or wherever it is that you live. But it's easier to do that in the nuclear family setup than it is in any other way. It's more healthy. It's better for the community. It's better for your pocket. It's better for their emotional health. So why not do things that are better for us? But society will tell you and the left and everybody that's uh, with the progressive left and the secular humanist movement within them, within that side of the political spectrum and really on that side of, of, of worldview and culture, they'll have you think otherwise. I mean, we're almost at a point now where we're erasing gender almost entirely. We're almost at a point where people want you to think that being of a particular race is wrong. Now, mind you, we spent a hundred years 
trying to get away from that, right? Saying, no, it's nothing wrong with being black. They can vote. They can do this. And now we're here in that place where we're like, yeah, we love black people. Black people are like white people. They're like Spanish people. They're like every other people. People are people. And we get to this place and now there's a movement to make you less white if you're white and that you should feel guilty if you're white and you should be aware of some sort of special privilege that you have if you're white. And, and to me, it's just, it's asinine that we would, in the same breath as a collective um, monolithic block of America, that we would say, yeah, it's bad to treat black people poorly or any people and to enslave them. And, in, and then the other part of that sentence say, and that's why you need to be less white and an anti-racist. <laughs> I mean, I think all of us uh, inherently are anti-racist, but this is the attack that we see. There's an attack on the family, the nuclear family. There's an attack on just traditional values and liberty and all of that. Honestly, for the next two years, three years, four years, as long as Biden's in office and he's going to continue to make decisions that are going to affect the way that I live my life, the way that I raise my children, the world in which we all coexist and he's going to wage a culture war, I'm going to push back on every part of that culture war because I think that's what we have to do. This is about the policies that are coming out of this Biden White House and everything seems to be racist. You know, it, it's interesting. I tried my best to avoid the whole Meghan Markle royal business. I told you, I thought last that we uh, fought this revolution to get away from the British. And all of a sudden now they've overcome and taken over the American airwaves. And we even did a whole segment on it here. So shame on me. Slap myself on the wrist. But this is um, this is where we are. And now. I don't call him Fredo Cuomo, but many in this industry do. They call him Fredo Cuomo. He's the younger brother of Essential Andy, Essential Andy Cuomo from the Essential Andy Cuomo podcast. And he says last night that if you have a negative opinion about Meghan Markle, que eres racista, that you are a racist if you in fact do that. I want you to listen to Chris Cuomo on CNN. People here on the right continue to savage Markle and her story. Something struck a nerve with them. Was it a multiracial woman speaking out against an institutional white royal family? Oh, no, no, it's not about that. Well, then what is it about? So you have to be a radical progressive left winger in order to say, what is this crap? Nobody gives a damn about Meghan Markle. And, and, and listen, I don't mean to uh, minimize her concern over the baby's race and mixed race. She's of mixed race. So I, I, I really don't. This is not about her. My point is nobody cares about her personal plight today. She is a princess, like legit. Even if maybe they quit being princess. How, how spoiled do you have to be to be like, you know, like every little girl ever I happen to have raised to. And, you know, they always dreamed of being princesses when they were little. They wanted to wear big poofy dresses and go to. She got married in a castle in a big poofy dress to a real prince. A guy who's worth a ton of cash because his mother was a princess. So she literally did that. Then she does this interview in this sprawling castle type of estate with Oprah Winfrey, the richest woman ever. And she's like, oh my gosh, because this is so bad and this is so bad. Come on, man. Two black women, one richer than everything, and the other one a princess, a real princess. I don't know, is, is the irony escaping everybody but me? Because it's just beyond the pale. And now Chris Cuomo to the rescue. Can't talk about Essential Andy because you've been censored by CNN. Okay, 
Let's talk about Megan and say that everybody who has an opinion about not caring about her opinion is a racist. Unbelievable. I mean, you know, the, the, the governor of Texas, he, he had a question, and we're going to hear that in a, in a minute, where he says, what are they smoking weed in the White House? But, you know, to me, it sounds more like they might be smoking weed at CNN because they're out of control with this commentary. It, it's almost Cardi B-like. It's almost Cardi B reminiscent. I don't know. Listen to this. And a lot of you motherfuckers think it's a joke, kiki, 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 like I was thinking, right? But that shit right there, just because you think you are mute to it, guess what? Your pocket ain't, bitch, because a lot of shit is from motherfucking China, bitch. So if you wonder where your motherfucking weave or your fashion over motherfucking packages have arrived, guess what, bitch? <laughs> Coronavirus! Coronavirus! I'm telling you, shit is real! Shit is getting real! Woo! All right, so this is what happens when she doesn't get her weed through Amazon fast enough. This happens, so obviously she needs to self-medicate. Big shout-out to Cardi. We love Cardi. Thank you for uh, providing us with that nice snippet of audio. Some of the listeners are like, oh, my God, is that allowed? Other listeners are rolling right now, literally rolling on the floor laughing. You got to love Cardi. God bless America. So Cardi B is saying that everything is coronavirus, everything's coronavirus. And I think she's right. And Chris Cuomo saying anytime you dis- dissent with somebody on the left that it's racism. Well, Lindsey Graham, Lindsey Graham says that, you know what, we have a big problem with immigration. And this is a real problem. This is something where the lives of thousands of young people, unaccompanied minors, you, you got kids that are approaching the border by themselves. Some of them are approaching with parents that may not even really be parents because there's a really big human trafficking problem as admitted by who? The president of Mexico. The president of Mexico yesterday, he called President Biden the migrant president. I mean, if that wasn't bad enough, saying that everything that's happening at the border is the fault of President Biden because of their lack of decision making and and their their poor decision making when they do make decisions. But all that being said, the um, senator from South Carolina, Lindsey Graham, Lindsey, you know, funny story. I've probably told you before, but it's funny anyway. I was uh, during the day. I'm talk radio extraordinaire Rich Valdez here on the airwaves of WABC. But at night, I get to be Mr. Call Screener from the Mark Levin Show. And in one of um, the interviews that Lindsey Graham did with Mark Levin, Lindsey called in earlier. Senator Graham calls in earlier than uh, I'd expected him to. And I was in the middle of a few things. So I pick up the phone in the control room. I'm like, yeah, Levin. And, and, and I'm like, what's your, what's your first name? And he's like, Lindsay. And I was like, oh, Senator Graham, I wasn't expecting you to call so soon. You know, whatever. He was like, it's nice to talk to people who actually don't know who y'all are. Most people trying to either love me or they're trying to cancel me. (laughs) So it was funny to talk to him. He really is a a very affable guy, even though in the media you're like, I can't believe him. What a traitor. Let's get rid of Graham. He's the worst. But when you talk to him one-on-one, he's a funny guy. He cracks a lot of jokes and he's, uh. Uh, a good time. You know, he's a good time to talk to you. You could see yourself hanging out with him for three or four rounds of beer at the bar. But that being said, I want you to hear what Lindsey Graham had to say about what's going on at the border. It's a humanitarian crisis. It's going to be an economic crisis for our cities along the border. And eventually it's going to be a national security crisis because they're children today, but they could easily be terrorists tomorrow. Oh, mic drop. Terrorists tomorrow. Terrorists, terrorists. That's my George W. Bush. Uh, Terror. The war on terror. So, yeah, I agree. Listen, 
Uh, and he's not the only one that says that. The migrant president, Mexico, says that Biden asylum policies boost illegals and cartels. The Mexican government is concerned that President Biden's asylum policies are encouraging illegal immigration and providing revenue to drug cartels through human trafficking across the U.S. border. Punto y final. Boom. Mic drop. That is according to the New York Post, who's reporting on whom? Mexican President Manuel López Obrador, also known as AMLO, he says they see him as the migrant president. Let me see if I could do it in my Antonio Banderas voice. They see him as the migrant president. And so many feel that they're going to reach the United States. Mexican President Andrés Manuel López Obrador said of Biden after their virtual meeting on March 1st. Mexico has asked the Biden administration for help to provide developmental aid to Central America, since many of the migrants that are coming from countries such as Honduras, Nicaragua, and Guatemala are seeking asylum in the United States. He continues, We need to work together to regulate the flow because this business can't be tackled from one day to the next, Lopez Obrador added. Some of Biden's policies that worry the Mexican government include a fast track to citizenship for uh, illegal aliens living in the U.S. and support for gang violence victims. Internal assessments reviewed by Reuters based on testimony and intelligence gathering state that the Mexican gangs have been growing their clientele and keeping tabs on measures that would encourage migration. Additionally, they have developed a new tracking system to move migrants across the U.S.-Mexico border. So, Mexico has asked the Biden administration for help to provide developmental aid to Central America. And, and that makes sense. I mean, that's kind of how diplomacy works. They're like, oh, everybody's starving in Nicaragua. They're starving in El Salvador. They're starving in Honduras. There's, did you know that in El Salvador, the, um, that is in the Western Hemisphere, the highest amount of carnage of death in any country that's not currently at war isn't that crazy it's literally like the third world so i understand why they're leaving i understand that you know the gangs run the show and clearly the president of mexico understood that clearly trump understood that and made sure we kept this element away in fact he was famously uh, or inf infamous for saying they're sending us their rapists, their drug dealers, you know, murderers, whatever he said. And, he, you know, he took so much heat for saying that, which was all true. And it was because the media likes to play it a different way, right? He says they are sending us their possessive. And the media plays it as he's saying that they are. And this is one of the biggest uh, misnomers of, uh, of media lies in, in recent history. And it continues to perpetuate. I still bump into people and I'm like, bro, you a sellout. You a Theo Tomas, man. How could you be for Trump when he said Latinos like you are rapists and drug dealers? And I'm thinking, uh, what are you doing today? <laughs> are you raping anybody? Are you Obviously, you're not one either. So what gives? But people fail to, to let that little hamster run around that little wheel inside their head. And they're afraid to think for themselves. Anyway, we're going to get into a little bit more of this. Plus, the continued attack on what's going on. But one thing I'm going to leave you with this thought. What is going on at the border? And Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, I think he was onto something when he said this. I'm just calling BS on that. Uh, they, they must have legalized marijuana in the White House and they're all smoking it because these people are clueless. 
That's right. He's talking about immigration. Uh, kudos. I love the guys in Texas, whether it's Abbott, Dan Patrick, of course, their attorney general, Paxton. He kicks butt. Keep it locked right there. I am Rich Valdez. So keep it locked right there. I don't want you to move a muscle. We are just getting started. I am Rich Valdez, and this is America. This is America. He's making podcasting great again. This is America with Rich Valdez. Bienvenido, America. Welcome back. Now, what's interesting is that cancel culture is all over the place. And whether you want to call it cancel culture or boycotting or people just being idiots because they disagree with you, whatever you want to call it, that's what's going on at Skidmore College right here in New York. And we're about to dig into that right now. Looking in the paper yesterday, I saw this article. It says Skidmore student claims cancel culture campaign prevented the formation of a conservative club. And I think, man, this is all too uh, normal nowadays. And it's honestly been normal for a long time. But it seems to becoming, be becoming more prevalent. Find your next truck at Woodhouse Buick GMC. No matter where you're heading or what tasks need tackling, there's a premium and capable GMC truck that's perfect for you. Make a statement on the job site, out in the town, or wherever life leads you in the powerful and distinctive Sierra 1500. Or elevate your driving experience in the adventurous and innovative canyon. Explore our inventory online at WoodhouseBuickGMC.com or visit our indoor showroom today. Woodhouse Buick GMC. We are professional grade. Woodhouse Nissan offers a variety of SUVs and crossovers to fit your lifestyle. Whether you're looking for an SUV with high towing capability or a crossover with all-wheel drive, you can expect a variety of safety features, plenty of seating, ample cargo space, and innovative design to tackle virtually any adventure. Explore the Nissan lineup of SUVs and crossovers featuring Rogue, Rogue Sport, Kicks, Murano, Pathfinder, and Armada. Visit one of our two Nissan locations or shop online at woodhouse.com. And it's it's a damn shame. A student at Skidmore College in upstate New York claims that she and her fellow classmates were barred from starting a campus chapter of the conservative group Young Americans for Liberty, YAL. She was on Fox and Friends and she said, I started emailing students and almost immediately I got pushback is what Hannah Davis uh, told the team at Fox and Friends first edition on Wednesday. And it's really sad to see that. I have two daughters, you know, one's 15, one is 19. And, you know, I just can't help but think if they wanted to do something like this and, and, you know, one of my kids is more conservative, the other one is more libertarian. And and I just think if they did want to pursue activism this way, I would I would be so uh, honestly, the word I'm going to use is heartbroken if they were barred from doing it. But I'm not naive. I mean, I went through my own uh, experiences like this, just having diverse thought when I was a student at NYU which is why I'm no longer a student at NYU, right? and that's 20 years ago. But it was, uh, it was a difficult thing then, and it continues to be a difficult thing now. Davis says that she and her classmate were targets of a quote-unquote cancel culture campaign in which members of the student body created a petition claiming that YAL groups were springboards for hate speech, bigotry, and they were disguised as political discourse. So they started a petition and they've got nearly 2,000 signatures. Skidmore has approximately 2,600 undergraduate students. So that's a pretty impressive petition that they've put together. And here to help us make sense of it all is Sean Tima, interim CEO of Young Americans for Liberty. 
I want to get his take on this and really um, the behind the scenes, the real scoop, because this isn't something I think that as New Yorkers, as Americans, any of us can really allow to continue, at least not to continue unchecked. We've got to call them out on their mess. Sean Tima, welcome to the program. Rich, glad to be here. Thank you, sir. So um, give us the scoop. I mean, I know what I'm seeing in the media, but you know what's going on because you're intimately involved in these things and, and you've been on the forefront and you yourself um, have been on both sides of the coin, you know, having, uh, as I understand it, been a supporter of Obama at one point to now, uh, you know, being the head of YAL. That's right. You know, I went into college uh, pulling the lever for Obama. I saw every Michael Moore documentary known to man. I wrote my senior high school thesis on when Michael Bloomberg's soda taxes were, you know, the greatest thing that could happen to the city. <laughs> I just thought government was the solution to our problems. But then I went into the classroom. I heard social justice radical statement after social justice radical statement. And I started to think, eh, there's got to be another way. But the tipping point, Rich, and you might appreciate this. I never knew my grandfather, but he escaped from Cuba when Fidel started to take power. Wow. And I've got my professor at the front of the room. And he says, you know, we don't give Fidel Castro enough credit. He did give everyone free eye exams in Cuba. There's something the United States can learn from that. And the whole class is nodding, writing down, oh, yeah, yeah, that's it. I knew there had to be a better way. Fortunately, Young Americans for Liberty found me. They showed me the way, introduced me to free markets, civil liberties, and peace, common sense things. And I'd like to think that this is just happening at Skidmore College or my alma mater. But what's happening is a far greater, more destructive trend that's destroying these campuses across America. The pursuit of truth, civil discourse, and what might be considered real tolerance for diversity of ideas are being sacrificed in the name every day of social justice and defining anything to the right of Bernie Sanders as hate speech and bigotry. It's insane. But that's why we fight. Man, well, let me tell you, I mean, first of all, uh, kudos to you and, of course, your family that escaped uh, the tyranny and oppression in Cuba because, yeah, I mean, I'm a big anti-communist. I believe that we all have to be kind of well-versed in in what happened in all of these communist takeovers throughout history because as you talk to people like your grandfather and others that actually did that, that escaped the communism, they're the first ones today sounding the alarm. Tears come to their eyes as they talk to me, even on the phone as a caller to the talk radio. They, they sit here and they tell me, I can't believe what I'm seeing in America. It's just like communist Cuba. Or it's just like what happened uh, when, when Lenin was in office or when Stalin was in office. And, and when people tell me that this is so eerily reminiscent of what they experienced, I can't help but think, my goodness, we have to do something to protect the next generation. And, and honestly, we've got to do something to protect this generation because uh, in many ways, this is a culture war and we're losing it very, very fast. So uh, Sean Tima, the uh, interim CEO at Young Americans for Liberty, tell us a little bit about what it is that you guys are doing on college campuses that's so bad that Skidmore College is saying, not here, bro. Well, I'd like to, you know, say that we're doing something terrible and deserving of being shut down. But unfortunately, all we're doing is introducing students to the idea that government is not the answer to your problem. It's not the solution. It is the problem. We're introducing them to the ideas of free speech, free markets, civil liberties. And that's bad enough for these colleges like Skidmore to try and shut us down. I mean, these colleges are become little more than indoctrination centers for converting young Americans into foot soldiers for BLM, Antifa, and the radical left. And you see that with how the students reacted right away to say, hey, they're not promoting Bernie Sanders or 
Kamala, oh, we got to shut them down. They could be dangerous. But we are standing behind our chapter leader at Skidmore, Hannah Davis. She's a fighter. And one of the things we do is our National Fight for Free Speech campaign, where we empower students to fight back against the schools that try to censor them through activism, grassroots, and legal efforts. And we've got a pretty good track record. In 2018, we sued UC Berkeley for denying a chapter and won. We sued the entire LA community college system for trying to stop students from handing out the Constitution and won. And in 2016, a college in Michigan even arrested some of our students, had them spend the night in jail, again, for simply handing out copies of the Constitution and introducing students to what the founders thought. And we fought them and we won too. So we back our students who are in trouble. We introduce students to the ideas of free markets, civil liberties, peace, free speech, you know, the common sense stuff that we can agree on. But for a lot of these colleges, it's just too radical. And that's too bad because we're going to keep fighting. Good for you. Right on, brother. I love to hear that. Um, If you don't mind, how old are you now? I am 27, so I'm junior AARP by a young American for Liberty Standard. <laughs> Good for you. And I ask only because I think we need to, to, to really increase the outreach that we do to people in your age group and, quite frankly, 10 years, even you know younger. The, one of the crazy things that I, I read this week and did a segment on um, and we're going to talk about is babies being viewed as racist as early as six, or three months. And it, it, I couldn't help but think, my goodness, if the left is going to go after people and say, look, you've got to talk to your kid about racism and they're going to start the indoctrination now where parents are now indoctrinating. In, in particular, the emphasis was on white parents talking to their white baby about being anti-racist at three months. Some kids can't even have fully focused vision by three months, but uh, that's what they're saying to do. That's how uh, radical the, the push is to go after young people. So when there's an organization that, you know, advocates for liberty, young Americans for liberty, uh, I think there's got to be an emphasis on going after the youth and a lot sooner, right? Sooner than high school, because like you said, by the time you got out of high school, you were already, you know, um, saluting Obama because that's what you knew. I completely agree. And there are great organizations, you know, like the Tuttle Twins, like Foundation for Economic Education. They do great work in the K through 12 space. You know, we found that there is still a lot of apathetic students and a lot of students who can be converted on the college campuses, even the far lefties like myself. But I'll tell you, on the babies thing, the left loves creating problems that isn't there. They love demonizing people just so they can have a purpose. You know, they need someone to attack. Because, you know, politics is their altar. It's their church, right? Which, which is just a shame. Um, but the one thing that gives me hope, you know, I mean, I've talked to some teachers, some folks, you know, my age, uh, liberty inclined folks who are in public schools right now. And the way that they are trying to shove this social justice mantra down students' throats now, he's starting to see, these teachers, I know, they're starting to see some resistance, even from the kids. You know, they might be overplaying their hand, this uh, education cartel with trying to shove SJW mentalities to kids too young. And I'm hopeful that as they grow up, maybe the rebellious thing to do in the next 10 years will be to be a young American for liberty right away. And uh, so that's what gives me hope. The work we're doing and the fact that the left might even in fact be overplaying their hand. I love that. All right. So I guess uh, final word to you. 
What is it that we, the rest of America, we, the people, everybody that's listening coast to coast on This Is America podcast and on the radio show and and every network that I have, I'm going to make sure we push this out because I believe in what you're doing and I think it's such a valuable mission. What is it that we can do to help you, to help young Americans for liberty, to help kids that are on college campuses across America to continue to carry the torch of liberty forward? Well, I very much appreciate that. The two things I would say is just keep speaking truth to power because people follow bold speakers and bold leaders. And if you have a college student or an upcoming college student or a young person who's interested in getting involved, have them check out yaliberty.org. That's yaliberty.org. And we'd love to connect with them. Excellent. All right, everybody. That is Sean Tima from Young Americans for Liberty. Brother, you keep being the patriot that you are and banging and ringing that bell for liberty. You as well, Rich. Fight on. Thank you, brother. Thanks for joining the show. So don't move a muscle. Keep it locked right there. This is America. I'm Rich Valdez. This is America. He's got the best head of hair in podcasting. This is America with Rich Valdez. Now, if I told you about it or I tweeted about it, you wouldn't believe me. Of course, that's at Rich Valdez, at Rich Valdez with an S. But, yes, officials in Arizona are now saying that babies as young as three months old can, in fact, be racists. The Arizona Education Department is now encouraging parents to talk to babies about racism, saying that three-month-old babies can be racist. This is according to their new report. Uh, And they've also created, quote unquote, an equity toolkit. This teaches parents how children as young as three months old can develop racial bias and encourages parents and teachers to talk to young children about race. Wow. It goes on. I mean, this is pretty interesting stuff. I think you're going to really see this as an eye opener as I did. The equity toolkit claims that babies first show signs of racism at three months old and that white children remain strongly biased in favor of whiteness by age five. I mean, can you, who makes this up? Who does these studies? And this is according to, I know who does the study, this guy, Christopher F. Rufo, who reported this on Twitter. Now, the infographic includes, uh, along with the tweet, how children's racial attitudes evolve from birth to age six with newborn babies showing no racial preference, but starting to develop when as early as three months old. Now, again, if you tuned into the first hour of this program, we talked about these women that took their dog to Yale University to see if the dog was, in fact, a racist or a misogynist. That was real. They actually did that. This is also real. <laughs> they are suggesting that a three-month-old child. Now, I'm I'm going to bet money, whatever I have in my pocket, a dollar, dollar twenty-five, whatever, <laughs> my metro card. I am going to bet whatever I've got that the person that did this study does not have a child. I'm just going to go and say that because that's usually the case. When people say things this ignorantly that, you know, your three-month-old child, this is probably one of those people that follow AOC all out crazy. They follow her lead in saying, should we even have kids anymore? Can we even have babies anymore? You know, so I think she's probably one of those or he's one of those. Now, listen to this. They start their racial preferences as early as three months old. At birth is a quote. At birth, babies look equally at faces of all races. At three months, babies look at faces more so that match the race of their caregivers. Now, let me ask you something. If you went from being in a woman's womb for nine months 
and potentially have no memory. And then you're out in the world and you're like, hey, food, right? And now you're at a point where you see human beings and there's a human being that feeds you on a regular basis. Do you think it would be appropriate that you find an attraction towards other people that may look like the person that feeds you? So if your dad is a black guy with an afro, maybe every black guy with an afro, you're like, oh, that guy looks like the, my guy who feeds me. I like that guy. Or like small children who are breastfed. I don't know if you've ever been around small children that are best f- breastfed, but oftentimes when they're hungry, they will look for any woman and throw themselves at any breast because that is their source of food. And people think it's cute. Oh, look at that. You know, Listen, this is just biological nature. This is how children are. So to say that at three months old, they start looking more at the faces of those that match the race of their caregiver has nothing to do with the race. That's their source of food. You put a Chinese person there, they're going to gravitate towards Chinese people because that's how it works. You go to the person that takes care of you. The baby bird goes to the mama bird. I mean, how do you totally negate science and, and nature in trying to make these stupid arguments? But anyway. It goes on. By 30 months, children are using race to play, uh, to choose playmates. And by ages four to five, children's expressions of racial prejudice peak. (laughs) So by five years old, you've got a full on Klansman, folks. You have got, this is so insulting to me, to my intelligence. And again, clearly these people have never had a kid. Kids will find a million and two different reasons to not like somebody. Kids can be rotten. But one thing that I can say they're not is they're not naturally racist. If a kid's a racist, it's because they were, it's a learned behavior. They learned to be a racist. It's not something that just accidentally happens where their expressions of racial prejudice peak. Nonsense. I continue. But while black and Hispanic children start to lose their inherent racism, can you hear this? While black and Hispanic children start to lose their inherent racism, white children are apparently prone to carry racial biases further into adolescence. I mean, this is, oh, I'm on page one. <laughs> it, to me, I'm floored at how stupid this is. But again, this is coming from the Arizona Department of Education, the government. I, I will continue. By five years old, black and Latino children, it says Latinx, but I reject this term. Black and Latino children in research settings show no preference towards their own groups compared to whites. White children at this age remain strongly biased in favor of whiteness. You've got to be kidding me. I mean, there's zero. It's an infographic that has these salacious statements that to me have no basis in reality. I mean, how you can come to the determination with a five-year-old child, if you've ever dealt with a five-year-old child, how you can come to any logical anything. Now, you want to argue with me and say, oh, well, Rich, you know what? If a five-year-old gets cancer, you can diagnose it like that, same way you could in anybody else. You're right, you can. But who made you the expert in diagnosing racism? Yeah, you get me a five-year-old kid that's running around with a Confederate flag and and a white hood because his parents are grand wizard. Uh, Yeah, that's a thing, sure, or vice versa. You know, with a black beret and a leather jacket because their parents are Black Panthers or whatever type of um, ethnocentric radicalism they're involved in. That's not the point in this. This is saying that this is inherent and inherent racism. And I am arguing against that, saying this is an inherent familiarity. If you grow up in a home that speaks Spanish and you hear other people speaking Spanish, you're not racist. 
uh, against people because if you hear somebody speaking Spanish, you're like, oh, those people sound like the way my parents speak. And, you know, we must have some sort of affinity because we speak the same language. That's somehow racism now? Or because they're, they're people are a particular um, ethnic feature, let's just say, whether it be their hair, their nose structure, whatever, their skin tone. These are these these are preferences not necessarily based on race, but on familiarity. And to me, this is so skewed and biased. But it goes on, and here's a quote from this: uh, They recommend reading that teaches quote unquote white parents how to talk to their kids about race. Isn't it interesting why they only have to talk to the white parents? White parents can and should begin addressing issues of race and racism early, even before their their children can speak. The lesson reads, avoiding the topic rather than actively countering it with anti-racist attitudes and actions simply opens the door for children to absorb bias from the world around them. So they're like, you know, we need to get the bias to them. We have to make them biased at three months old. This is like the Coca-Cola training that they got in trouble for to be less white. This is that training all over again. But now they're aiming it at three-year-olds, excuse me, three-month-olds, up to and including three-year-olds. Wow. Wow. I hope this isn't boring you. I find this stuff fascinating when I find these um, gems of stupidity in today's leftist uh, agenda. One resource entitled, What White Children Need to Know About Race, argues against neutral and colorblind approaches to race. Wow. Saying such approaches are a tool of whiteness. Instead, white children should develop a positive racial identity, which requires an understanding of systemic racism. In order for you to be white, you have to realize that you're wrong. <laughs> that was me ad-libbing. While students may need to be reassured that they didn't ask to be white. <laughs> wow. That's like saying, you know, I wasn't asked to be born with one leg. I wasn't asked to be born blind. Now it's it, it's a, a severe handicap to be born white. They should also know that the reality in which they are embedded in, in uh, activities and their unearned privileges ascribes to their whiteness. Anyway, I'm not going to go on with this. I mean, it, it literally says that we shouldn't be colorblind. Dr. Martin Luther King, who was the racial icon of my time, Jesse Jackson hailed Martin Luther King. Jesse Jackson was running for president when I was in fifth grade. He was the civil rights um, pillar of our society. Martin Luther King said, we will not be judged by the color of our skin, but by the content of our character. In effect, he was saying, we must be colorblind. I grew up with a kid next to me that was uh, a few shades darker than me. His name was Osama Marrero. He was, I believe, Egyptian and Dominican. To the other side of me, and this is, I'm talking about kindergarten, the kids that laid on these little plastic mats when it was nap time and nobody went to sleep. The kid over here was a lot taller than me. He was Haitian, light-skinned, Stan Hope Ellis. We all from Brooklyn, PS197. Mark Shulman, white kid, Jewish. It's very difficult for me to read these things and, and, and see them that way when this was my upbringing. It was very eclectic. I, I wasn't brought up in a Spanish neighborhood. I was brought up in a very racially diverse area where it, this is what I saw. This is what I know. I, you, you describe people. Yeah, oh, the Jews over there on East 21st Street. Sure, they were all Jews. They happened. <laughs> it wasn't a racial thing. It was just the Jews lived there. Um, Crown Heights. Right. There was uh, there was a lot of uh, there was Jews in one section of Crown Heights and the other section was all black. There wasn't any Puerto Ricans there. That's just how that was. There, there are naturally or maybe perhaps not naturally racially segregated neighborhoods, neighborhoods. Chinatown, right? China, China. Chinatown is a pretty Chinese area. 
They call it, that's why they call it Chinatown, Little Italy. There's a lot of Italian restaurants there. So you're not going to look for a Russian restaurant in Little Italy. You look for an Italian restaurant. You want a Russian restaurant, you go to Little Budapest, you know, or a Turkey, uh, a Turkish restaurant. Or you go to Brighton Beach, where you get, uh, you know, the, the Little Moscow area, or whatever it's called. My point is, every place has a, a niche. People and cultures tend to gravitate towards each other. Sometimes there's diversity. Sometimes there's uh, inclusion. There's there's uh, exclusivity with um, food or things like that, where you have these neighborhoods that become known for whatever type of cuisine. I don't think there's anything wrong with Chinatown or or these um, these other ethnic areas. Arthur Avenue, right? Arthur Avenue in the Bronx. This is uh, Italian or Albanian, that, that part of Europe. To me, there's nothing wrong with that. I know where to go when I want something good. But lamentably, these are things that are being deconstructed and deemed racist and deemed this. For what purpose, I can't tell you other than you got to read. I read an article, and I did it on my show if you want to find it. Maybe I'll, I'll look up the title, and I'll give it to you. But I recommend you listen to all episodes of This is America because the early ones were a lot more um, – that, you know, I didn't do them as often, so I had more time to prep and I did a lot of research. But one of the ones I did where I talked about an article in Marxist.org that talked about the national minority. And it basically was the foundation that they laid out in 1981. This was written about white guilt. So anyway, let's stop and pause and take inventory for a second. Hang on, hang on. Listen, whether it's a racist baby at three months, which we both know does not exist, whether it's the latest Cuomo scandal, whether it's college students being canceled from their conservative club, whatever it is, the one thing we know is that we must continue to reject radicals and the idea of racist babies every step of the way. Because if we stand for nothing, we will fall for absolutely everything. That's Hamilton. And in the immortal words of Sir Edmund Burke, Lord Acton, and others, the only thing necessary for this kind of craziness, this type of evil to triumph, is for good people like you to sit there and do nothing. So don't sit there and do nothing. Do something. Rise up and stop it from happening. Hasta la próxima. Until next time, America. I'm Rich Valdez, and this is America. This is America. 